Hello and welcome back to Chit Heads. My name is Khalid and I am one of the learning navigators at Embodied Philosophy. We have a resonant episode today with Lucy Crisfield, who is a speaker at the World Yoga Festival, a plenary speaker at the British Wheel of Yoga Festival, and the founder of Original Wisdom, through which she shares the inner teachings of mantra and yoga philosophy with sound, meditation, and scholarly precision. Lucy has just finished writing a book with the same title as her signature course, The Sounds of Sanskrit, The Language of Yoga. Lucy studied the violin and piano at the Royal College of Music from the age of 11, and after receiving a first-class honors degree in mathematics and music, she left London to travel solo through 20 countries over five years in her quest for a deeper understanding of life. Lucy now lives in the southwest of England with her partner and two children, where she offers unique classes which share the teachings and sounds of yoga tradition to illumine the intellect and connect us to the creative wisdom of the self. In this episode, Lucy and Jacob discuss the differences between the academic and vibratory approaches to Sanskrit, the metaphysical identity of sound, as well as the philosophy of sound within the modern yoga world. We hope you enjoy. Yeah, when I was reading your um, when I was reading your book, one of the things that I that I just feel I have as yet to feel connected to. I've, I mean, I've been, this time around, I've been here for just over two years, and previously I was in Oxford and I wasn't in London. But um, the story of kind of your formation and your um, the evolution of your um, study and adventure with Sanskrit, um, it was just beautiful to read about these these incredible teachers in. London, um, yeah. <laughs> it, you kind of pa- you paint this really vibrant picture of a really kind of um, spiritually rich city, you know, if you know where to find mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, and I and I kept thinking to myself, gosh, I need to find these teachers. And then, sadly, <laughs> each one of them has passed away. <laughs> so maybe maybe you'll be able to um, tell me who some of their living uh, yeah, living good. lineage holders are um, at some point. But tell us a little bit about that. Like, I want to know about these incredible teachers who you had the great fortune of learning from. How did they really shape your understanding of Sanskrit and and how did they um, orient you in this incredible kind of vibratory adventure that you're in? Um, yeah, well, I think the first, you know, real, um, yeah, shining beacon, so to speak, um, was called Dr. Shastri, and um, I was I'd enrolled in the SOAS um, School of Oriental African is that right? African side? No, what's the I don't know what it is. Anyway, yeah. SOAS, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> to do um, their evening Sanskrit course, and so I went to a talk, and there was Dr. Shastri was giving a talk there, and um, you know something about the shape of his head, <laughs> like just this incredible like forehead and kind of angle to his head, and these very very strong vibrant eyes and and vibrant heart like kind of he I always when I think of him I think of this kind of fire like a kind of bright burning fire, and um, what struck me immediately was his brilliance and his brilliant command of the English language. I mean it was like kind of being with a Stephen Fry but even better almost you know just this incredible. Um, flexibility and fluidity and kind of catching you out in in the sentences that you say and 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 kind of showing you how what you say is not ever quite what you mean because it's almost impossible to to be 
really really close in the English language just because our structure doesn't allow it so of course when you're a master of Sanskrit which is the grandmother of English it means that your your understanding of English is just just incredible and so I was so struck by this and um, you know I could tell also that he was Indian and um, so assumed he he lived there and uh, so if we knocked him after he's like you yeah, know can I can I come and meet you once before you go back to India you know He's like, well, I live in Hounslow um, half the half year, um, which was just literally 10 minutes from where I was living in uh, Twickenham, uh, six months of the year. And I was like, oh, wow. And then he spent the other six months of the year living in a Sanskrit speaking village. Um, well, that's where he was from, mm-hmm. sorry, um, in mm-hmm. kind of uh, near north of Mumbai, like about, I don't know, five, six hours north of Mumbai. I still haven't managed to visit it. So I went one on one. I went to see him. I think I had five years with him and I would go every week and with a list. I'm a very I'm a good question writer with my list of like 20, 30 answer, kind of three or four of them. We just sit on the floor and his, you know, nothing. You walk in his room and it's like there was nothing in it. It's just completely empty. I think there was just like a statue and a mm. picture of one of the gods somewhere. But the, and it just sits straight on the floor. No cushion. No, just that kind of what that Indian vibe, but there in 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 Hounslow, you know, in in London, and um, so he'd sit and his his um, wife would bring in really 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 sugary tea, which he was like try and sip, try and try and kind of gulp down the chai, and um, so he was um, yeah really really um, for formative in in kind of taking my understanding beyond what I'd initially learned with the Krishmachara Yoga Mandarin. So the Krishmachara Yoga Mandarin, mm-hmm. based in Chennai, is where I'd done my first um, exploration into the Vedic chanting and the Sanskrit. And I just wanted to know more. And he was kind of my first step into broadening beyond what that lineage had shown me. So before I move on to Peter, any any questions or anything about that? <laughs> Oh, yeah. So and it was interesting uh, about Dr. Shastri because um, when I when I first saw that name, I, I looked him up, um, I Googled him. And actually, the first thing that came up was my advisor at Oxford giving the Dr. Shastri lecture on like 2021. So I just thought it was this beautiful serendipitous connection that okay. um, that a, you know, I would have looked it up and my own teacher would have come up. Um, but also that they obviously, you know, that um, Dr. Shastri is so well respected that, you know, it was he was given a lecture by um, Devaker, um, who is currently the um, the professor of Eastern religions and ethics at Oxford, I guess. So yeah. I thought that that was really beautiful. Um, just to. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, yeah, I know that Dr. Shastri had a lot of influence, a lot of connection in Oxford, in the Oxford Centre um, and the School of Economic Sciences. So all the kind of main hubs of Sanskrit in England, I believe Dr. Shastri was definitely an advisory element of that at some point in his his time, because I think he lived in England most 50 percent of the time for a good years, like a long time. So. Yeah, so did that well. do you do, would you say that his because your approach to Sanskrit is is quite um rooted in kind of the traditional sonic theology in a way um so and and a lot of times when you find Sanskrit academically or within you know academic departments that's it's it's somewhat stripped out so was Dr. Mm-hmm. Shastri kind of a, in the middle did you did, did you experience that as not being you know this sort of 
like stripped down academic version of Sanskrit, st but still kind of maintaining the attention to the vibratory um, uh, approach. Yeah, absolutely. Because, um, yeah, when I was with SOAS, that was definitely the stripped down, you know, academic approach. Um, and with the KYM, the Krishnamacharya Mandarin, it was it was just the, the vibratory. And he he did really um, cover branch over those two aspects. And he could, he, you know, philosophically rich, grammatically rich um, and etymologically rich. I since have gone on to study Panini with um, Dr. Stephen Thompson. I think he only he had a he had a, a basic grasp of Panini. Um, so yeah, he he was um, able to really go around in all the whole area, the whole sphere that I was interested in because I definitely this it's both for me. It's not just the vibrity; it's absolutely the well <laughs> the way I see the academia is. It can't be separated from the the deep philosophical richness that is held within it. But you, you really do need to spend a little bit of time kind of sitting in the structure. What is the container? What is the structure mm -hmm. of this language? Um, and to do that, it can feel like you have to access that slightly more thinking part of the mind. But as you do that, of course, all it does is deepen those times when you're sitting in the vibratory element of the soundscape as well. Mm. So then how did um, Peter G, uh, Peter, your, your, the next teacher that you encountered, yeah. how did he sort of expand your understanding? Because it seems like he had a particularly profound impact on you. Yeah, yeah, Peter Harrison. Yeah, just even saying the name, I got the kind of chills. Um, mm. uh, so yeah, it was actually the, um, the week I was leaving London, you know, having spent 30 years of my life um, of in London. Um, and I was at this particular um, line of inquiry had been intriguing me for a long time, which was to, is to do with Swara. So the Udata, what is Udata and Udata Swarita, um, which, are, which some people describe as pitch. Dr. Shastri described as the positions within the mouth. But I, different people, I was getting conflicting ideas from different people and I still wasn't kind of like... I hadn't felt it in my system exactly what it was. So anyway, searching on the internet and an article came up and the article was so different to anything I'd read before about, I don't think it was necessarily about something to do with Sanskrit. And um, it was this website, it just said Peter, there was no information about where he lived. It was a .com, so he could have been in the US or it didn't necessarily say he's in England. Mm. And it said, any questions, contact um, Vanessa, who's his student. So I sent my question about um, this swara um, to Vanessa and the reply I got back from Peter just went beyond all the kind of academic different um, views and understandings that I had received from other teachers and it just went straight to the universal resonance of sound um, without getting into the particularities of because I'd have to explain a bit giving me the, the feeling of it and I was so kind of um surprised I just didn't know what to reply I just knew I had to meet him so I replied and said you know do you live in London could we have a session and he replied and he said he said I don't do sessions as Gurdjieff said when you take on a student you take them on in their entirety I'm only interested in a meeting of hearts um but I know nothing 
why don't you go see um Solve McIntosh? She's someone who wrote a book. You know, you, you know, I have nothing to tell you. Go see someone else. I kind of like you know these, these typical stories of like a guru, right? Which you yeah, you read exactly. in books, right? like the right kind like, of guru, though. Yeah, in London, they're always in India, right? <laughs> Not in London with yeah. an English guy who's never been to India, as it turned out. And of course, I replied like, no, 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 I really would like to meet you, please. Um, and we went back a few times and eventually said, Lucy, you are insistent. OK, I'll speak on the phone next week, whatever. So we spoke on the phone. I remember, I think it was like two days before I left London. I was kind of walking <clears throat> around outside my house. And as soon as I heard his voice, it was like, who is this? What is this person? What is this person? And he said, OK, at the end of that conversation come and see me in turnpike lane so he lives in a very 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 busy area in turnpike lane there was kind of like a kind of mad person who lived next to you next to him you could hear these kind of like wails through the hall and um i arrived i didn't know what to bring i just bought a pineapple because i didn't kind of know what to do and um again typical kind of teacher uh, indian guru story I write a knock at the door, he just opens the door and, and I was like one minute late because I didn't want to be totally on time. He just opened the door, you're late. I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm just walking around like, I've got this pineapple for you. And he's like, okay, put it there. And then we sit down in this, again, it's kind of quite, well, it wasn't like Dr. Shasti's room, but it was like this big room, just a chair in the middle of the room. And he said, sit down. And I sit down. He's like, so what do you want? I'm like, um, so uh, I come start trying to think of a question, right, about the Yoga Sutra or the Upanishad. And I come out with some question and he says, I'm not an information bureau. I have, there's no, I know nothing. What do you really want to know? And then I'm like, um, and, you know, and then I, I, I don't know, come out with something else. And then and there's a silence and he just kind of fixes me with his eyes. And he's like, Lucy, what do you really want to know? <laughs> and it's like, okay. And then I, I, you know, and then my voice changed because he, all he was, he could hear the voice, right? A voice that's kind of like where my voice is now is a little bit more, it's just kind of in the mind a little. And, and it's like, he's like, he was already, I think, 76 when I met him or something. I don't have time to talk about information. It's like, let's get to the core of things right from the beginning. And then I can't remember exactly what my question was. It was something like, well, who am I? You know, <laughs> who am I? And then it was the tone of the voice. <laughs> Just, you know, a really light one to begin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's kind of, we're going to cut right to the core. So that's what, what this is all about, right? And then, and he's like, okay, now we can begin. And then I was with him for like four hours that day. So no notes, no, no writing. He's like, you can't listen and make notes. You just listen. And I just had my baby was, I don't know. Six, maybe eight, seven months or something, but I just kind of knew there was almost nothing more important than seeing Peter as often as I could, because you know, as soon as I met him, I could, I could sense his age as well. And I then travelled down from Stroud, so two and a half, three hours. Gave my baby to my mother, and it was always a four-hour session as often as I could. Um, sometimes every other week, but then it lesson when the other baby came and then I got um involved he had a group so then I joined the group and I went on a few retreats together and so what Peter gave what Peter gave was uh I mean he was a master of sound and that was what I was looking for a true master of sound and I'd already studied the Yoga Sutra and the Upanishad with 
um, the KYM with Calster with Descachar, um, you know, Calster mm. before he the whole thing, if anyone knows about that. But anyway, previous to that, I was very involved with him. And um, I studied with Dr. Shastri um, and also a little bit with Dr. Stephen Thompson. And so, and then when it came to Peter, it was like, here we're finally getting to the cherry on top. You know, we're try- finally getting to, it's nothing about all these conflicting different intellectual ideas about what things are. It's about the sound. It's about the resonance. And if we, it's, it, it's just about tuning our ear to hear. And in fact, we all have this capacity. It's an innate within everyone. But firstly, we often don't trust it because we're not used to trusting a knowing that isn't that kind of like mathematical, oh, I understand two plus two is four. That's not the knowing we're looking for, right? And that's what we tend to do as Westerners because we come from that kind of structure of, we ha- we've made a connection in our mind about the feeling in our body and what it is to know something. And so if we don't have that feeling, we don't think we know something. But what Peter showed me was that that feeling that we have is actually a restriction, a block to allowing the actual knowing that these great works bring forth within us. And it is impossible to to access that without the sound because it is brought through the sound. So the very idea, which I already knew about trying to look at the Yoga Sutra in a translation, it's it's just kind of it's just it's just kind of an interesting exercise. But obviously, if we're going to access it through the sound, first of all, we need to know what what the right sounds are. And then once we've kind of heard those right sounds and and learned how to kind of feel them, there's a kind of dropping of a turning from making the sound and looking for answers like what does this mean as I make this sound to kind of that kind of backward step they talk about in Zen of just noticing what's already there in the sound hearing what's already in the sound and so I suppose now what I um, share um, is is a combination of kind of bringing people through med- meditative meditation in into that kind of state of, of hearing of listening um, but also um, e- entering those other areas of the of the Enneagram so um, Peter talks a lot about the natural Enneagram which is present within the Veda and the Yoga Sutra is just kind of a natural expression of um, the way things unfold right these nine steps around a circle so which step so Vyakarana, which is the, the grammar is at, is at number four. So we step we step in at number four and we deepen into the philosophical richness of of the grand structure of the language. We step in at number one, which is shiksha, which is the pronunciation. Like what well, how do we get really clear about the pronunciation? And and chandas number two, the rhythm. What is the rhythm of these mantra that we are sounding? And as we step in these different parts of the circle. So the whole circle starts to speak to us and the whole Veda, which all of this comes from, the wisdom of the Veda, kind of comes forth in this resonant sound that we are now attuned to hear. And it just takes, a, a you know, a few little or, or just some steps to, to hear it, much like a musician um, can hear very easily. Oh, there's chord one, chord five, chord four, you know, and when they hear a pop song, it's like, well, that's just chord four, five, one. It's very simple. 
Um, but we may not, we don't hear that until we've been shown it. And once we've done a few music theory, like this is what chord five to chord one sounds like, you're like, oh, okay. And then you're like, oh, okay. Oh, and that's just what that piece is just, and now it's gone to chord six. And that's a slightly minor chord. And that's how they're creating that atmosphere of kind of feeling um, slightly sentimental. Or, so it's the same with music, you know, and, or, or art. You, you, if you don't know anything about art, you look at a picture, you know, that's nice. But if someone shows you, well, if you do this line here, it brings the perspective this way, and you learn how to see art, right? I'm, I personally mm -hmm. have not been shown that, but I have been shown how to hear music. I haven't had my background in classical music, um, piano and violin, so in a way it was quite easy to kind of bring that, that already sensitivity to the soundscape into the Sanskrit. Um, Mm. Oh, I want to pause on that because I really like this. So you learn how to see art. I love this analogy because it it also kind of um, resonates with um, uh, what I see in the work of Abhinav Gupta, right? Is that there's this sort of process of cultivation. There's this process of sort of almost like an, a form of aesthetic refinement that happens. So, um, you know, in the process of kind of cultivating oneself spiritually. And do you then... Um, so do you see it then as sort of like development of a certain faculty that is latent to to be able to hear the veda is something that we all have the capacity to do but as you're just as you're describing it in terms of learning how to see art or learning how to hear music based on theory that that this is a this is a faculty it's not something kind of in other words it's not something utterly transcendent there's something actually quite um yeah. pragmatic and available about it yeah, um, because I think that's what people often resist, right? As they think of it mm -hmm. as this kind of otherworldly thing, when in fact it's just a fact. It's like a muscle we haven't developed. Absolutely, absolutely. And when I am, um, so you know, when I work with people as an intro thing um, on yoga teacher trainings or something, I'll show this. We'll, we'll sound the five basic vowel sounds, and then we'll and then I'll ask them, well, which ones, which which. Um, element earth water fire and space so they're sounding and they're like oh my god i don't know i'm like we'll just try we're going to sound them we'll sound the five vowels a few times and then it's like okay which one's which one's water is which one's earth and then often there will be quite a few people who's like well that sound was just water i just knew that was water and it's like right there's no you knew that right it's in your being and then they're like wow i don't know how i knew that and it's like no but that that's the beginning if we can hear the elements within the vowels and trust that then we can hear the elements within the consonants and then so there's kind of these are the kind of latent steps of reawakening our ability to to hear yeah to hear resonance and if we and what's the ultimate resonance the ultimate resonance is ourselves the self what is mm. self? and the self is this expression of sound so this is such a different um understanding of sound you know just to bring it back to kind of our own cultural conditioning mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about sort of what are the obstacles from from that perspective that we are dealing with like uh, you know when we come into a room and you know from some perspective like music is sort of the most divine thing there is and it's sort of right in front of our face and yet in terms of its kind of reflection of that and yet we've kind of categorized it as entertainment right it's sort of it's 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 sort of bracketed off as this thing that we can appreciate from some sort of you know aesthetic distance but it doesn't really have anything profound to say which seems to me to kind of reflect a little bit of the 
the cultural way in which we ignore something that's right in front of our face. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you, how do you kind of get your students around this sort of, let's call it a Western obstacle that, that isn't ready to kind of understand, um, this kind of metaphysical, uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, identity of sound? Yeah, well, I think it's a. I think within your question also is is the question of you know what is the difference between music and mantra, right? <laughs> I've written right. a, yes. a a post uh, some at some point saying you know mantra is not music. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we'll have and 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 think people think mantras and you can take some Sanskrit words and say them completely within your current. Sanskrit within your American or English um, uh, sound forms and you're just all you're doing is rearranging the consonants and and vowels into a different order and you're saying tat savitur completely with the t's in the wrong place and the o in the wrong was place. Was that your American <laughs> accent? All American, mostly American, aren't they? The the um out of the world is English as well. Tat savitur varenyam. Varenyam bhargo. I mean not bhargo. Bargo deva siddhimahi. So they're saying this right. <laughs> And there's no observation of the vowel sound. There's no observation, not only of the consonants, but also the vowels, but also the rhythm, the inherent rhythm of what is the Gayatri. The Gayatri, what does Gayatri mean? Gayatri means the rhythm of three times eight syllables. So if you change the syllabic rhythm, you are no longer having any interaction with the Gayatri. So not only are your, 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 in putting the consonants in the vowels or you're not leaving your soundscape you're then adding a western one four five harmony to it or five six harmony and calling it a mantra but it's not it's 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 music what is mantra mantra comes from the root mantra and it does not mean protecting the mind mantra that's completely incorrect the, the dhatu is mantra which means um in in secret uttering all around Mm. What is a mantra? Mantra is the agent of that which secretly mutters all around, right? And if someone says to you, something is being secretly uttered all around, what do you do? What's the kind of what's the kind of gesture that you make, right? You kind of you listen, you listen, right? Like, what's the secret? You're kind of like you're listening. You're not putting yourself tad savvy. No, you're not like it's not me doing the gaiji. It's like I'm listening for the rhythm, for the for the sound of the river coming. That's what chandas, the movement. I'm so, listening for the sound, the natural sound of the universe that is already present. And it's very, very hard to hear that when we mm. first were staying within the system that we were born and um, our vernacular um, language that we're born into. Um, comes from the Latin vein, a slave. The vernacular literally means the slave that is tied to the hearth. So when we're born, we have to be tied to a hearth to survive, right? We need to know how to communicate so we can get our food and our... Eventually, that structure into which we've been born and the sounds um, keep us as a slave to all our thoughts, all our repetitive you know, thoughts of none of which are true, all in our language. Those which learn no more than one language have a great blessing because they experience um, how their whole sister, their whole body, they feel different when they sound a different language, when they speak a different language. Now, if we're 
what is it about Sanskrit? And I don't even know if I'm, I didn't hear him answer your question, but I'm just going to carry on with this theme for now. No, you are. It's beautiful. Keep going. Okay, good. So if you're, if I stay in English, I haven't gone beyond that which is tying me as a slave to the hearth. It's kind of like an asana, like when we do our, our um, yoga, like, if we kind of do it, if we do our trick and answer, just this kind of slight movement, we're not, we haven't, we haven't surrendered to the asana, right? So asya is the position in the mouth. So what is mantra? Mantra is the most subtle of all the spiritual um, paths of inquiry. What does it mean to be subtle? It means it is subtle. <laughs> it means it's not going to be that's every two of uranium with some bon with some with some tabla and a thing. I'm not um, saying that that doesn't do something. You know that opens the heart. And as kind of repressed Westerners, singing in a group of people with, with music is is always a wonderful thing to do. You know you feel connected to the people around you. But it's not mantra. It's, it's a fraction of the power of the truth of mantra. And that fraction is found when we get very very still, very quiet. We start really feeling ah. Oh, so it's not e, it's oo, oo, it's not oo, it's oo, so we're feeling all of the vowels and consonants, we're feeling the rhythm. As we feel this, we're kind of turning into what is this? What is the Gayatri? What is the magic of the Gayatri? Can I hear it? And as we get so as you know i teach for in akashruti which is just one tone we we observe the swara but the swara are positions within the mouth that don't affect the pitch um so we're working with the energy within the mouth and, and when we're working with the energy in the mouth with the akashruti with the one pitch you really are sounding incantations in your mouth right you're the dance of the universe is like fireworks in your mouth and it becomes very still, very I don't know, almost, I, I want to use the word private, but it's like the only person who's going to realize who I am is me. So it's down, ultimately down to me and my mouth and my sound and me hearing who I really am. And of course, group work is also amazing and has tons of you know benefits to it. But I'm, But the real, real essence of mantra is found quietly by yourself listening to the incredible power and resonance that exists in our very own mouth and heart mm. how beautifully articulated lucy that's that's so beautiful we'll have to uh, um extract that as a little um short <laughs> little video short <laughs> teaching for you <laughs> so you know um as you're speaking, I'm thinking, you know, how kind of important this perspective is and how how really rare it, it is in a lot of ways, how difficult to find, at least in my experience, it's it's harder to find teachers who are teaching from this place. Um, and, you know, we've we've we spent a little bit of time uh, talking about kind of the academic way and the way in which it is not interested largely in um it's really kind of i mean in my experience the the teaching of sanskrit especially at oxford is very mapped or rather modeled on this kind of classic philo philological approach right which does you know kind of tries to bracket out the vibratory stuff because it's essentially religious and they want to be secular in their own way 
um, or they think it's religious. That's how they see it. Um, and but then at the same time, so we have that on the one hand, and then the other extreme is sort of the modern yoga world, where where this this teaching or this perspective of the philosophy of sound is is generally missing. So I'm curious what you kind of what your experience has been in kind of the modern uh, yoga world. And um, do you see it as a sad thing <laughs> that much of postural <laughs> yoga sort of is anesthetized of this truth? Or um, uh, do you have a kind of, uh, how, how do you sort of relate to that? And how do you enter into that environment when you're teaching, knowing that this is going to be yeah. quite alien to many yoga practitioners? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, so um, there's a few streams coming to me. Um, most people who come to so I have two ways of teaching. So the, the in fact, nearly every, mostly everything I do is people come to me. But occasionally, um, and more in the past, I used to go to yoga teacher training. They'd invite me to be the come do their two day philosophy thing, right? So those people haven't come chosen me. They're just doing a two teacher training, and then I turn up, right? And they're like, "What the fuck this happened?" Uh, because I can't, I I cannot teach surface I can't I just can't do it um you know and sometimes people said you know you just you can't go to it's like I I can I, it's just clear it's on my thing now I will only go to the absolute deepest level right from the beginning that's all I can do so um you know I used to teach at yeah there's a few places I've taught where you know they they you know in their 20s they've signed up to yoga clearly because it's in the spandex kind of like that kind of vibe and um but you know everyone and and I've I've taught I taught it you know what about five years ago I've taught a couple of really tough ones forty in the room forty three in the room, just yeah you know, they're all on the phones eating and you've got to like all in the twenties just never done anything like this right and you've got a harness, and every time, it's happened magic absolute magic and and the toughest group it took two days, um, most groups it takes half a day, but the toughest group it took two days and by that second day they're all listening for the first time and why nothing to do with me it's because of the sound because I always you cannot teach that group just by talking right you've got to you've got to slowly you do the call and response and then the bit of talk and they're like what the hell just happened I just meditated for the first time in my life for the first time in my life my mind was still like you know and then you have the feedback and then you do a bit of teaching and you do a bit more sound and the sound the Sanskrit sound when you sound it as it is supposed to be sounded even when you sound it, when it's how it's not supposed to be sounded, it's powerful, right? Even when you just hear it yeah. completely incorrectly pronounced with a with a guitar, it does something. So just imagine what it's like when you actually sound it right. It's like you get right down to that core, and um, that you know, it's amazing to see. They just didn't even know that this could exist, and they'll all say, "This is the best part of the teach train. Such a privilege. So grateful that you could." could be here and then the people who um but I do less of this now just because I'm doing more of um I don't have so much time so the people who come to me who sign up to my thing they usually have done 20 years of yoga practicing or training and whatever and they'll come to me and um and I'll show them how to sound like the bija mantra for the first time so they've all studied the bija mantra like for 10 years they taught it for five years and then I show them right completely wrong everything they've ever been shown is and people are <laughs> people are just people are in shock you know they're like 
Yeah. But, oh my God. Like, kind of hysterical laughing, like shocked, like, what am I going to do? Like, everything I've been teaching has to be changed. And it's like, they, initially, there's a kind of like little hurdle for them of like, wow, I've got to really relook at everything. But also, wow, thank God you have found someone who can, who's actually, for the first ever time, told me what these sounds are. Because people, and especially with sound, like, you know, with the, the trans, the trans migration, whatever the word is, from, from the east to the west, you know, we've had the arsoners come over. The sound has really got lost and the Sanskrit. Yeah. A few Western yeah. practitioners learned a few words. They, they, for example, someone were, learned the word manas, and then they thought, yeah. "Oh, manas is mind." Therefore, that man in mantra, mind, right? You see, so then everyone says mantra is protecting the mind. No one actually checks what the tattoo is. Man doesn't even mean mean mind. It means some bodhane in awakening. So if man was being treated as a dhatu, it, it has nothing to do with the mind, and it's actually mantra. So, so many people, layers upon layers upon layers of people now have never checked the dhatus. No one's checked the roots, no yeah. one's checked the roots. And so we've got not only misinformation on all the basic words, but also a complete lack of understanding of the actual resonance or sound or the depth of it. So, yes, there is a, I think I wrote... Um, I think I didn't get that. I, a few people were a bit ruffled. That was the last, uh, only and last time I ever posted on the yoga teachers England England um, page, and I and I it was a post called "Yoga teachers teacher trainings have got it wrong." <laughs> a mantra revolution is on the way, right? And that really, and I was like, okay, this is not this is not the place to be, you know. And I, you know, I've posted once in the last six months on Instagram. Like, I'm not. This is this kind of teaching. It, it's not for Instagram and Facebook. This is for actual face-to-face -face deep work, you know? And um, whenever I have the chance to be with a group of people, without a doubt, everyone will feel it. It's never not happened. Every group I've ever taught have ended that group. And I can see that like they're all like, gosh, I had no idea. And yeah, so- I was just going to say that's been a teaching, you know, because obviously when you first start teaching, you're like, you know, <laughs> and and so now that you get the nerves, I still get nervous before teaching, but also I just know because it's it's something far beyond anything to do with me. Like as long, if I just sound those sounds and encourage people to sound those sounds, all the teaching is done for me. You know, it's nothing to do with me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's. There is sort of a yearning, I think, for um, a lot, you know, a, me a sense of meaningfulness. Um, even though in your book, you know, the the meaning is beyond meaning, as you point out at one point, like or that it's sort of below the threshold of meaning in some deep way, right? Because it's sort of the condition of all meaning. Um, mm -hmm. But but ne nevertheless, I, I think that so much of so many people as they come into yoga, there there's a lot of confusion about kind of the historical and philosophical underpinnings and and there's a lot of ways in which i think the the what is sort of passing as kind of yoga philosophy today or yoga history is actually kind of a um more of a scholarly enterprise like yeah. the the scholars have replaced the sort of devotional yeah. teachers and, and gurus in a lot of ways in these teacher trainings yeah. and it's very surface it's very stula right it's very yeah. gross level understanding and it's not actually 
offering the the vibratory um, practice because they don't know that they weren't trained in that they were only trained in studying the kind of surface intellectual history of this stuff. And, and and it's appealing um, because you know that's that's how we are conditioned to feel like we know something, right? It's like I want to be a yoga teacher, so I need to feel like I know what yoga is. So um, obviously, doing kind of studying in that way, we feel is bringing us closer to it, and and it does bring us some understanding, and and it brings many um, thoughts, and of course, um, as I say say in my piece, you know, it's like I have also learned many things that way. It's not to to say yeah. that is completely wrong but it has to be with the with the other both ways um and that other kind of more just deep inquiry through the vibration as you say is definitely definitely missing yeah mm. i want to ask two questions one about um the vibration that you've been talking about and another about um uh, grammar and the and the question about vibration is is based on something that I've observed comes up a lot for students because um, when they hear you know people want to do it right right there's a lot of students that they they care about it you know whether it's because of you know concerns about you know appropriating things incorrectly or concerns about vibrating incorrectly and then you know a thunderbolt from God is going to come down and strike me dead you know. <laughs> Like, like if you get this mantra wrong, you'll, you have seven years bad luck sort of thing. So how do you, which, you know, is an unfortunate perspective because it actually, I think, um, uh, disincentivizes people from doing the work of actually, you know, acclimating to the sound and, and getting it wrong in order to get it right eventually. So what would you say to students like that who are actually now feeling a bit, um, uh, I don't know, concerned about getting it wrong and what that means? Like, is there a... It, it, since there is a vibratory potency to these mantras and an, a physiological effect in some deep way, mm -hmm. um, doesn't that mean that if I pronounce it wrong, I'm going to, you know, grow myself a third arm? Yeah. <laughs> so to speak? <laughs> um, yeah, I would say um, I th you possibly could, you know, you could cause <laughs> I haven't managed it yet, but no, you could cause yourself some damage, but only if you are doing a lot, a lot of sounding, right? If you're sounding incorrectly yeah. a lot, and I have seen people who have done that and have their whole eyes like covered in styes, uh, you know, heat, you know, I mean, some of these these mantras are so powerful you know when you do it in a group even incorrectly you know you get hot your whole system becomes hot like so many so many really extraordinary things have happened in groups and and most people there are not pronouncing it totally correctly but but always it's kind of a movement of energy right it's trying to release things um if you're not doing you know two hours every day you know consistently incorrectly and you'll just occasionally do it and the intention is there you know and the heart is there then it still is, you know, going to be a, a, a deeply beautiful and powerful experience. And you can try whatever energetic experiences happen are part of this moving. And it's a beautiful image in, that Shankara gives in the in, in the Isha Upanishad of two pieces of sandalwood. So when you rub two pieces of sandalwood together, it's a very disgusting smell. Apparently, I haven't actually smelt it. Um, and so this is the idea of Sugandhim in the Mritlanjaya mantra, the good smell. So it's a very, and this is a, um, 
image to describe what happens when we come near the Veda or the mantra, right? So when you first come near it, it's, you're coming near this very intense energy, creates a bit of a bad smell. But eventually, as your system comes more into harmony with that Veda, with, then you get the beautiful smell of the self, of the sandalwood, right? So there are many different extraordinary energetic things can that can happen. Um, and I would trust that e even, you know, getting it right is a lifetime journey anyway and you know hitting that perfect sound if we're if we're there with the with the right intention and we're just and we're interested it's more about the attitude because if we're like i'm going to sound this you know i've heard it's good to sound it 108 times so i'm going to do that every day for a month you know that could have some untoward energetic effects but if we're sitting there with like i'm interested in just kind of hearing like my voice and hearing what what the sound of this mantra could be and investigating with it and listening, then that kind of attitude um, is not going to bring us, um, on, it, it can still bring us massive energetic experiences, but they are going to be part of the process of that sandalwood rubbing towards mm -hmm. that. And we can trust it. Yeah, it's, it. I'm thinking of, it's almost like a repetitive strain injury, right? Like if you do something yeah. once or twice, you're not going to get that injury. But if over time, if you do it incorrectly yeah. over and over and over, like chaturanga, for example, yeah. you're going to, you know, tear your rotator cuff. <laughs> and exactly. it, you know, seem it, pre presumably then, you know, if you are in a place where you're actually so dedicated to a, a practice of repetition that you would be repeating it for two hours every day, you probably mm -hmm. also are interested enough in the recitation to learn it correctly yeah. and would have sort of discovered that at some point. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, people will email me, you know, if they're doing a course with me and like, well, I'm having this, you know, it's really strong energy is happening. It's just like, okay, just back off the sound a little, you know, just, just do five minutes rather than... So, you know, you do have to be careful. I mean, I absolutely, when I started, I mean, I was, um, when I started, I was Bikram yoga only, right? And then only Ashtanga. It was like the oh, idea of sitting still was just like crazy. The only thing I could do was sweat hard in, in a room, right? So I had to do lots of Bikram before I could handle Ashtanga. And then I was doing Ashtanga and Jiva Mukti. Um, and then I did, and then I signed up for this Krishnamacharya course and they were doing the yoga that the KYM does. Um, I mean, I had to do, I had to wake up and do two and a half hours of like pigeon, you know, the full yoga so that I could handle being in their yoga class. Cause I was so, I just, I mean, I was, I was a real absolute mess on many, many levels. I've been through a lot to kind of stabilize myself so that I can. Yeah, I, lo I loved, uh, I hope it's okay to share, but you wrote in your book, so I feel like it's fine that you went to your first yoga class high on cocaine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in Notting Hill, yeah, I went straight there from the from the um, from the club, and and something happened in that club. <laughs> it was like I am never not Notting Hill. Which studio was it? Um, it was a small studio. Someone called Lisa Buhan, who was a okay. Bikram um, lady, and then she was kind of like my first. But I didn't know it was Bikram. I didn't know what Bikram was, you know. But and um, and then I and then I I, I did at least three, four more classes like that. And then it just dropped away, right? You can't, the yoga just, it's like, I didn't have to give up anything. The yoga just filled me. And I was like, I just could never miss that class, you know? And within a year I was in India. Yeah. Um, and then eventually, you know, I'm at the point now where even, even moving my arm, you know, I want to do some yoga. <laughs> it's like that. I just don't want to do anything but sit still and, and listen to, <laughs> to sound. I mean, my practice is completely um, 
changed. I don't know why I even came up with that. It was something you said. Um, about oh, yeah. So when I first started the sounding, I was I approached it like I approached my yoga, right? It was like I was doing two hours a day and I was sounding them written 108 times every day for like, you know, two months. And I mean, <laughs> and I kind of like vibed of just being really, really high energetically, you know, just crazy energy stuff happening. And when I taught, I mean, I was a little, <laughs> I used to push people like to that level as well. I used to do call and response really fast and people would, well, like, what, you know, sweaty. I remember some person came to me and it, this was like I don't know, 15 years ago to a, um, it was in a yoga festival and I start, you know, why did you come here? What brought you to this class? And one man was like, oh, I really wanted to go to the Ashtanga class, but I broke my ankle. So I've been forced to come here. I'm like, okay. And then by the end of the session, he's dripping with sweat. And he's like, this was so much more intense than an Ashtanga class because I'm doing kind of Shiva chants, call and response really, really fast. And um, I, you know, a few people, it was too much for some people. And then I learned, I learned, you know, compared to how I teach now, which is like sometimes a whole hour, all we'll do is like sound the R, you know, and listen for the R. Mm. Um, and that has been a progression of, of the practice of, of learning to hear myself and, and the teachers that I've met that have guided me and allowed my physical nervous system enough capacity to kind of be here, you know, because I was desperately trying not to be here. Mm. Well, I'm glad you you made it here. So, so my question about that sort of um, segues nicely into the, my question about grammar, just because in terms of the sounding, right? So w w the, one thing about what that I've observed also in just in terms mm -hmm. of um, this, I guess, because I, I, I consider myself a student who also sort of came from yoga into Sanskrit. And of course, I, when I first studied with a teacher um, more formally, the you know the several other yoga teachers slash students who came into that class fell away very quickly because of yeah. the grammar because the grammar yeah. was so difficult and intimidating because yeah. the grammar is hard <laughs> the grammar <laughs> and the syntax is really hard so um and what's more accessible for many people and what many people i think kind of they're like oh yeah i love chanting mantras in class and you know i yeah. love um, uh, you know, Namasankirtana, and so I want to go and study Sanskrit more formally. And then they realize, oh wow, this is actually a super complex language. Um, and then they might get pulled into you know pedantic um, yeah. grammatical considerations that don't feel like the spiritual practice to them, right? So I'm curious, you know, when you were talking about how we enter into it from these three pillars, right? The vibration, the grammar, and uh oh, the, the, the um, meaning. The the rhythm, I said. The rhythm, sorry, yes, the chanda. Um, what is, you know, is that is that grammar, in your view, really necessary? Or can students kind of still um, extract the the profundity of the of mm. of Sanskrit from merely vibration or merely a chanting kind of mm. practice? Um, yeah, uh, they can. Absolutely, you can, but it adds so much more. I mean, it's yeah, it's yes, of course, you can, but it's kind of impossible, also, at the same time. Um, 
I love teaching grammar um, and I don't call it grammar because we you hear grammar and you think um, the English well you know it's grammar like coroner, right yeah right it's coroner. it's it's a psychological grammar is a psychological process it's refining the mind to be able mm. to see clearly so the way I teach the um, Vyakarana I was very blessed. Dr. Shastri taught me all the um, paradigms with the sounds of his um, village. So, Ramaha, Ramao, Ramaha, He Ramaha, Ramao, He Ramaha, Ramam. So we learn all the paradigms with chant. So they're learning. So we have early morning um, on my grammar course. We'll have early morning chanting sessions where we're just chanting through all of the nouns, all of the verbs. Um, and the Paninisu Aljas um Aljas Tabihamhis. So I'm teaching the grammar through sound as well. It, you can't separate it, right? The whole of the grammar came forward in Paninisutra, which is all in sound. And I was also blessed to for Peter to show me the depth of the Paninisutra. You know, a sutra, the definition of a sutra is vish, vishvamo, vishvamukha, vishvamukha, vish, turning in all faces. So it's universal, right? It's not just applying to the grammar, it's applying to me and you. I am a word, just as you are a word. What happens when we come together to form a sentence that is happening between us? You can't separate grammar from the experience of me as a word moving around in life. So I'm always, um, like it's impossible for me to teach without going into the deep philosophy of every element of it. And I think, you know, that's often what my students say, like, you know, they kind of, okay, they, they, they start with the sounding with me and, and then they're like, okay, well, I'll learn how to read it. And and then before they know it, they're kind of so far along and they're like, well, I just never knew grammar could be so at such a deeply psychological and not just psychological, spiritual process um, of, of deepening in, in how to see clearly because you can't do the Sanskrit grammar if your mind is not clear, right? You, you've got to be able to see and, and also the karaka, so I've just finished my chapter, The Cosmos of the Sentence, 10,000 words. It's my longest chapter, but I think it's going to be accessible. Um, you know, it's a thousand words. The cosmos of the Sentence. I of love that. Sentence. So in, with, by, mm. for, from. What, is, what do they mean, right? What are these six key little words that we use all the time in English? I'm going with the person from here to there. There's only six relationship a word can have with an action. And action's in the center, and you have the six relationships around the edge. This is the center of the cosmos of the Sanskrit cos cosmology. You cannot understand a single Sanskrit sentence unless you've understood that the action is in the center. And the relationship that each noun has with that um, center is written into the word itself. It's expressed within the word. It's, it's deeply philosophical. You can't. That's what my whole first grammar um, course is on. You can't. You can't even begin to enter into it unless you understand the deep philosophical foundation of not only every sentence but every word. So I've also written the cosmos of the word, which is shorter. So the dhatu and the pratya. What's the? What are the two bits that join to make every word? Consciousness and matter. Why am I called the word? The beginning was the word because I'm a joining of consciousness and matter. So prakriti and purusha. Is in every word and when we can see this the beauty then 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 you can each word becomes a kind of jewel a universe if you don't have the kind of structure to understand um how a word comes about and also the four stages of speech that every word physical word that we speak is a product of the subtle 
um, dimensions joining in the in what's called the Madhyama realm, and the Panini grammar is all in subtle and causal. It's discussing what it's a meta language which just discusses how the causal and subtle elements give rise to physical speech. And beneath that physical subtle causal, we have the para, that which is beyond, down where we get the paranormal, beyond in our lower belly. Hmm. What is more magical than how everything, how every word comes forth in this moment? Where is it coming from? Can I hear, can I be aware of the subtle and causal realms that bring forth this word? And this is what's so beautiful. You see, Sanskrit is the easiest language in the world to learn, is how I always express it. Because it's so makes so much sense. It's kind of like the intuitive. It's just got this intuitive resonance of ah, oh, of course that's how it is. And written into every single word is the map of exactly how that word came forth from that which is beyond through the causal, through the resonance of the vowels and the consonants, through the subtle, and into the physical realm. And of course, when we understand that, when we can hear, I, I hear the word karma, but karma comes from kurut. And what's kurut? And what's the vowel rur? That's fire. Kurut karma. You're like, ah, oh. it's like taking apart a watch. Vya karana, the word for um, grammar in Sanskrit, means fully taking apart the parts, right? So if you don't know anything about watches, you look at a watch, you whatever. If you've taken apart that watch yourself and you know exactly how that watch comes together, you're going to look at the physical forms around us in a very different way. So as we take apart every word and every sentence and we look down to the subtle and causal realms, it, it, we come back forth with a, with a new vision, with a new capacity to hear. Mm. And mm. It's, it's almost impossible to separate from our deepening of what a mantra is, is the roots that lie between if we're talking about mantras like the Gayatri or the Mrtnijaya that have actual words what are the roots beneath it how did that come to form and what is the cosmos of the actual structure of the sentence here because it's because we translate it to mean um you know we pray we sacrifice to this god that's not how it is in Sanskrit in Sanskrit is sacrifice is existing here in the middle and there is a relative um, some a relative um, experience between that action and something which has the capacity to act in this particular moment in this particular way it, it completely changes the way we see words which is what I first felt when I saw Dr Shastri it's like this man understands language in a way that is extraordinary <laughs> and slowly yeah, now I mean I, I can to realize why why he could do that mm. yeah i mean it's you can you can get a, a, a taste of sort of the the shift in perception just in the way that you described it and i i don't yeah. think you know i've had a lot of conversations with folks about about sanskrit and it's something that i'm i'm in sort of a phase of doing more of you know people sort of that are more on on the from the vibrational to the scholarly and and everywhere in between and and I lo I love the way that you expressed that so I'm I'm curious I I you know Panini has always been felt to me like the driest <laughs> the driest uh, adventure I'm like putting it off and putting it off you know I haven't formally studied 
um, the Ashton Yaya gets. Um, but listening to you, I'm like, dang, I need to get into that. So I'm curious um, um, about how all the all the things you're talking about connects to the Maheshwara Sutra, because I I I first saw this um, text in the kind of a, a guidebook that my teacher Paul uh, kind of compiled. And he hasn't really ever taught anything about it. It's sort of one of those things that I think at some point he was teaching on. And then, you know, it's kind of, you know, as he teaches other things, it sort of hasn't been brought up so much. But I found it fascinating and I immediately was attracted to it, to its kind of cryptic nature. They're just set, I sensed something so um, profound just in looking at it. And, and I was so delighted actually to see um, you writing about it in your book. And I even I don't know if you know of this of this book, but I've, I I don't know how legit it is or how how grounded the perspective is. But it's called Shiva's Hologram, the Maheshwara Sutra, um, and it's you the only thing written that I've. Oh, he did, yeah, because yeah, it's the only thing that I've seen written on yeah. the Maheshwara yeah. Sutra. I've never yeah. seen it. I haven't seen any literature on it. Maybe you have, um, but yeah, talk to us a little bit about this because it feels like such a fascinating um, kind of locus of study and reflection. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is at the core of the whole soundscape, the whole language. And yes, it's extraordinary, isn't it? How it can be missed almost, you know, when you realise. And I'm actually in my long-term study group. We're on our third term, I think, of study on this. And, and you know, it's 42 sounds, mm. basically, and takes it, it can take 10 seconds to sound 20 seconds to sound and we're on our third term and we, we've got many terms ahead of us on this study so we've been going into a lot of detail i say these um sounds um i mean shall i just sound them so because people yes please yeah so i'll just i'll just sound them um because this these yeah and then i'll talk about them <laughs> okay Okay, well, um, I'll just kind of warm in. Um, I un rorek ail ayout hayavarat lang yamanganam jabhain gadhadha. I'll just do it one more time as a little high. Oh, um, I un rorik So these sounds are the sounds that Mahishra, who which is another name for Shiva, so the story, you know, he's got many names in this story, but Shiva um, 
the people were in despair, great despair. They went to find Lord Shiva, please help. We don't know what to do. Lord Shiva said, I know what the problem is. The problem is that the Lord Apasmara, the Lord of um, forgetting, has descended upon mankind. I will now dance the dance of creation on Lord Apasmara while simultaneously killing him um, to allow us to remember who we really are. So he dances the cosmic dance of creation. And at the end of the cosmic dance of creation, there's a moment of silence. And then he brings his dummery drum and he hits the dummery drum 14 times. And each time he hits it, hit Ayum, Rorik, Ayum. And these sounds present at this um, whole experience were um, Panini and um, uh, Patanjali and out of these sounds, they went on to create to, to sound to create the entire system of Sanskrit of the Sanskrit language, um, which became which is called the Ashtadhyayi, which means eight meditations. So we think you know the famous grammar book of Sanskrit is called Eight Meditations. That's the title. Eight meditations on what? Eight meditations on the forty-two sounds that came out of Shiva's drum. So these sounds, the meditator, you know, this great sage Panini, who is not a sage out there, this story is not talking about something that happened 2000 years ago. This is talking about right now in us. There is that part of us mm. that is in despair. Where, where do I find the way? And we find Shiva, that which lies within. So Shiva within us is that which lies within everything. And, and we listen. What, what is the way? And as we listen, the demon of Apasmara is destroyed. And out comes forth the sounds of ah to ha. So the first sound of these sounds is ah, ah, and the final sound is ha. Ah, ha. What is the word for I in Sanskrit? Aham. Mm -hmm. Aham. Who am I? Aham. I am ah, ah, I am these sounds. All of these sounds are who I am. And each of these sounds is related to a different element or not related to, is an expression in the most subtle form of a different element of a different um, movement within our system. And so by hearing these, this is kind of like the most uh, connected, the most kind of raw connection to the sound of the self is in these sounds that came from Shiva's drum. And the whole of the language is a meditation on those sounds. That's at the core of the whole language. I mean, what's more exciting than that? Like we think Panini, and what does Panini mean? It comes from the root pun, which is got two meanings, which means in praising and communicating. So what is the essence of Panini? It's that which wants to communicate. We need to tell someone I'm hungry, can I have some food? And also it's to praise, praise the wonder of the world around us. That is that if we can't communicate, if we can't praise, we have nothing. We need language, we need the capacity to speak, to speak truthfully in connection with our subtle and physical and causal realms. And we all know what it feels like to not say what we need to say, to have said the wrong thing, to have amassed ourselves because we have a perception of what is required in this moment and what's acceptable. So we monitor, we kind of um, monitor ourselves and don't speak. And then afterwards, all of our, um, nearly all of our issues come from not a, direct clear communication of our deepest being and what does Panini give us the study of Panini gives us the steps back into ourself into directly into aham, aham 
directly into Shiva. I and when we're rooted in I, the blocks that are going to stop us from truly bringing forth who I am can be let go of, can be dissolved. And then what is more powerful than someone, not that it's about power, but I'm just thinking of the Sankalpa bringing the mother of the gods chapter, my partner, um, he, he, he smashed up the shell building in London and he didn't, but a few of the people he was with, he actually sat on the top of the shell building for a night. Anyway, he got um, taken to criminal court. Um, uh, it was part of the XR thing. And um, all six of them got found not guilty, primarily because of um, what Sid found. What he found was that he believed that the people of Shell would have given him permission if he had, if they had known, if they knew what the result of their work was. And he stood in that courtroom and because he had worked so, so hard to find what he actually truly, truly believed and, and that action aligned entirely with the truth of that feeling and he was able to bring that truth forward in his words the whole courtroom was brought to tears didn't like shock the, the prosecutor literally didn't know what to say all she could say was you're lying and he didn't have to say anything because he had found that connection that allowed the truth of his self to come forward and it was so powerful that as someone there said he was almost like a moved mountains you know that's how powerful the word is when we truly step into it and this is a path the path of Parnani is a path to finding that finding that within ourselves we don't all have to go smash up the shell building but to to be able to step into who who we are and what it is for us to do and to not hear what everyone else is saying is a revolutionary act actually Mm. Mm. that's so beautiful and um it kind of i'm glad we're sort of moving into this somewhat uh, a direction that kind of lands us in the moment that we're in as we get close to the end of the of the of our interview and mm -hmm. um and so i kind of wanted to just ask you more um directly about this idea of praise um as being sort of you know, one of the powers of, of language, you know, from a Paninian perspective, but also perhaps, you know, from a, a cosmic perspective, I'm, I'm curious if you think that some of the challenges that we're facing socially, politically, globally, um, in some sense, boils down to a lack of access to this capacity to praise. Can you speak a little bit about that and, and how you see that as, as connected to you know, just some of the <laughs> symptoms of the Kali Yuga. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I mean, my mind is spinning a little. So are, you, are we going um, Palestine, Israel, or are we just general, or? Um, <sighs> maybe. <laughs> 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 oh gosh, I wasn't. I wasn't necessarily thinking Palestine, Israel. Um, I guess. I mean, it's. Yeah, it's it's one of those kind of hot topics. I don't even know where to begin yeah. with that one without inflaming um, yeah. Yeah. 
you know, one community or another. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess maybe, maybe a way of getting into that would be speaking of the tendency towards tribalistic mentalities in general, populism mm-hmm. and kind of this sort of this, um, this hardening into opposing camps mm-hmm. and, a, and, a, and a loss of, at least this is how I'm seeing it, a, a loss of kind of a, a lens uh, or a rather a, um, a, a language for, to bring it mm-hmm. to the topic of our conversation, or a, a conceptual vocabulary that allows us to speak to or from our interconnectedness, our... Mm-hmm our shared ground of being that all seems to be missing. So I'm just curious what all of what we've been talking about has to do with that. Yeah. So, I mean, that is, is written into the structure of Salzburg. It's like impossible to, to lose us, you know, our our connection with that almost. Um, If you're, if you're connecting with Sanskrit and, and you're being shown, you can connect with Sanskrit and not look at those deeper elements as well, but you know, it's all there. Um, and yes, I feel absolutely, um, I think probably in essence, it is the lack of listening, the lack of hearing what is being uttered all around and the need to be the one who is uttering to state, you know, what am I stating forth just for the sake of stating forth rather than, than a hearing in, in kind of collaboration, in a hearing to what the moment is calling forth, you know, Peter would always say, what is, mm-hmm. what, what does the moment require? And then we're in service, kaivalyam, you know, the, the actual goal, if there is a goal of yoga, you know, so many people have never heard of this word, kaivalyam, everyone says, you know, if, they, if anyone knows anything, they'll say it's samadhi, the eighth step, and it's like, well, what about nine? There's never eight, it's always nine. And the fourth chapter, no one ever gets to the fourth chapter of the Yoga Sutra. They stop at chapter two, right? And then chapter four, Kaivalyam. <laughs> and what is Kaivalyam? Kaivalyam comes from the root cave, which means savane in serving. And Kiva as a whole means an aloneness. So Kaivalyam is kind of an alone serving to the whole, the one serving itself. Can we can we hear that? Can we? Notice there's many different layers of, of becoming, of being that service of what is required, no matter what our ego says we think that we should be doing. But on a kind of first step, it's it's just that keeping that question alive within us. What what is what does the moment require rather than what do I require? And of course, there's a time and a place for asking what do I require, especially when you spend your whole life not doing that. So each teaching, this is the important sometimes of a teacher, you know, asking the right question for the right person at the right time um, and not presuming that that question, you know, as we so often do now, means that the opposite question is wrong, right? (laughs) Really hearing, okay, the opposite question may be relevant sometimes, but bringing in that that kind of greater context of the sentence, we're not just the word. Um, Let me just read, um, if I can, this, this paragraph. Um, this is in Hatha Yoga from Exile to Wholeness. Um, I just saw this before I started. Um, occasionally, like the verb of the sentence required after a string of nouns, we must sacrifice ourselves as the necessary word to give a desired sense of meaning to the whole. We read a sentence one word at a time. 
but the imprint of what is to come resounds at the beginning and the beginning echoes at the end. The impact of any word runs like a river back and forth throughout the sentence. As we listen or read, we trust the processes at work as the relational capacity of hatta runs through the sentence, much as it does through life, creating a cohesive meaning of the whole. So I think we can quite easily become an isolated word. It's all about me and myself and pro and just become the most amazing person, person of you that you can, which has a shelf life because it's not who we are. Why does it have a shelf life? Not because it's wrong or, um, but because the fullness of who we are is, is not held within that, within that view, within that mentality, within that, that um, looking, within that lens. There is a deeper lens asking for us to be stepped into and life will pull us there. Um, mm. And if you, if, you, if you have time, unless you have another question, I could read the last few paragraphs um, of the Hatha Yoga. I think thoughts for that too. Shall I read that? Okay. Yeah. It's actually four paragraphs, four paragraphs. You can always cut it out. Shall I just read it and you can see it? <laughs> we can, we'll make it, we'll make it. Okay. Um, the gravitational force of Hatta swells ruthlessly from life's core, calling us to become the living force of the death that awaits us. It calls us to step out of the paradigm of better or worse, to trust the force of its energy and allow life to become conscious of itself. And so I finally surrendered to its call and stepped wholeheartedly into the life before me. The first shloka of the seminal work on Hatha Yoga, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, tells us that Hatha Yoga shines before us as a staircase rising to the heights of Raja Yoga, the teaching of the Yoga Sutra. And so the Yoga Sutra starts where Hatha Yoga leads us, threading the knowing of reality itself into the substance of the continuous unfolding of our life. The staircase of Hatha Yoga is laid before us by the unconscious current of our life. Our agency belongs in whether we choose to step consciously onto the ladder or not. It was the pain of the present which carried the weight of my previous suffering that gave me the strength to step onto my ladder. And as I, as I did, I turned to face the perpetrators of this difficulty and embrace them parts of my dance. Without diminishing their wrongs, I thanked them and reclaimed both the victim and the perpetrator, male and female, you and me. And as I answered the call of two in its depths, I found one. And so are born the qualities of Swatmarama, who is attributed to composing the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, and whose name means rejoicing games with our own consciousness. And our constant revelation of bountiful gifts, a never-ending staircase of revelation. Each stage is a gift to behold and enter fully onto. Each step is uniquely ours to reclaim, and in our reclamation we find the kernel of our existence, the Shiva and Shakti, the Hut and Mukta, the sun and the moon, <clears throat> waiting with open arms to embrace us into their whole. The final paragraph. And the Rishi within, the, the Noah within us, has always known this wisdom 
and once found the sound of its resonance, feeling the gentle rush of air through our throat, the ha remembers me as our tongue rings the roof of our mouth like a beater meeting its drum, an ignition of air rising from our belly as the ta remembers you in our shared shower of resonance, and so ha ta remembers itself as the emptiness in which the resolution sings, the unmoving journey of exile to wholeness. Wow, that was beautiful. I had to close my eyes just to take it in. What is this, what's this book? It's, what was the title again? The book is The Sounds of Sanskrit, The Language of Yoga. And it is, I've been writing it for seven years. Um, it is oh, this is like, your book that you just read from. Yeah, that's my book. <laughs> I didn't get that section, Lucy. No, 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 I didn't send that to you. Well, there's, there's at least 90,000 words you haven't got, so. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I thought I was like, okay, last last few chapters are just bullet points. I was like, okay, I didn't I didn't get the full, the full bit. But that is a great well, note no, to end on. I thought you were reading... You've got like 2% of the book. Yes. Well, I, I actually, I was okay with it. I mean, it was so beautiful and uh, I'm, I'm so ex excited for you to publish it. Um, and I, but I was also grateful uh, because whenever I have to read a full book, it's always, it's always a, a challenge yeah, yeah. To, yeah. To, to, to read it all, <laughs> but it was really beautiful. And, you know, like being able to have this conversation with you and hear the kind of the aliveness that this is how the life how this lives within you is really powerful and um i feel like i've received a transmission just having this conversation um and so i'm i'm really excited to share this episode and 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 wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about where people can find you what you're what you're yeah. kind of offering um uh, you know online uh and and how people can get in touch with you if they want to study with you well, first of all, um, if anyone wants to publish my book, I have not done anything to try and find a publisher because I've been writing it for seven years. So um, I'm just lifting my head or out of the parapet for that. So if anyone knows who might, um, preferably sounds true, if anyone from South you listening, that's who I want to publish with. So we'll see. Or anyone else. Let's see. I haven't really looked into the publishing world yet. Um, and then starting with me, well, it is hard because... Once people do something with me, they tend to stay around. And so now I've got quite a, I'm quite full with all of my long-term groups. If you already know grammar, to join in with some of my grammar groups and my Lagu, then email me. My email's on the website. I'm on, I'm on very rarely post on Instagram, but I do check messages there. So that might be the easiest. Original wisdom underscore underscore the two underscores originalwisdom.co.uk is my website originalwisdom.com is an american um animal website so mines.co.uk um but i will be doing i think uh, a chakra um workshop on the 24th of february like a three hour or four hour workshop on how to um sound the chakra sounds um and i might do a follow-up on that in march and then the sounds, of, I mean, my, my intro course is the sounds of Sanskrit, the language of yoga, which is four full Saturdays. And that's kind of like my intro thing. I don't know when I'm going to run that again. So if you're interested, go to the website and, and say, uh, click on the I'm interested so we can get your name. And then when I do run it again, um, we'll let you know. But I'm just in the phase of trying to work out how to 
I think once the book comes out, things are going to might you know change quite a lot. So my emphasis at the moment is kind of doing the odd workshop, sticking with my students, and then just trying to get this book out there because that's been you know a huge thing. If you were particularly interested, I do offer some early morning meditations which you might be able to join. So if you're interested in that, it's not on my website, just email me. Yeah. Lovely. So Lucy, it's been an absolute pleasure and delight to speak with you. And um, I've been speaking with Lucy Chrisfield. You can find out more about her at the website. Again, is, remind Original me, Lucy, this name of the website. Original Wisdom. Original Wisdom. Original And the Sounds of Sanskrit, the Language of Yoga is her incredibly uh, lovely book that will be being uh, published hopefully soon. Those of you acquisition editors out there listening to this podcast, and I know there are a few, uh, please reach out to Lucy. (laughs) Thank you, Lucy. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.